Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, body positivity, and health at every size. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in weight-inclusive wellness. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 81. My guest today is Rachel Cole, a certified life coach who specializes in helping women identify and understand and feed their truest hungers. As an eating disorder survivor and body positive activist, Rachel has so much wisdom to share and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, a couple of announcements. If you're ready to make peace with food, you can join my intuitive eating online course, which is a 13-week program designed to help you ditch diets and learn to trust your body again. The course is chock full of multimedia content to help you work through the principles of intuitive eating, and it also includes a monthly Q&A podcast from me and a private Facebook group exclusively for course participants. As one participant said recently, the Q&A podcasts are great. They make the course feel more like one-on-one counseling. It's also nice to hear the commonalities and concerns that so many people share. And that is very true in the Q&A podcast and in the Facebook group. People are so supportive and share their common concerns and struggles with each other in a really helpful way. And it's just a beautiful thing to witness. So you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And then if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great rating and review on iTunes. Just open up iTunes on your computer or the podcasts app on your phone, the little purple app, type in food psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave us a rating and review sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm always so grateful for nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings so that more people can find these body positive messages. So it really is a public service if you leave us a nice rating and review because it helps other people get these messages too. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to say a couple things. I've been speaking out about the election on the podcast lately. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to what I have to say. And I've heard from so many of you who are really supportive about my speaking out and who share my values and appreciate my expressing them. So to everyone who's expressed that and felt that, I want to just say thank you. And I'm truly grateful for your support. But I've also heard from a few people who weren't so pleased with my sharing my feelings on the election. And if that's any of you listening right now, I just want to say to you that I don't want you to feel alienated and I want you to know that you're absolutely welcome here. But I ask that you also try to have some empathy and compassion for why I and many of my guests are expressing sadness and outrage about the election. And even if you don't share these sentiments, which again, I totally understand, I just ask that you listen and try to understand why we are feeling these things. The thing is, most people find this podcast because they are struggling in some way in their relationship with food and their body, right? And my mission is to bring body positivity to a wide audience and to really show why a truly healthy relationship with food must include body acceptance and a rejection of the diet mentality. And my guests and I throughout the years have tried to illuminate all of the systemic social reasons why, you know, so many of us suffer in our relationships with food, like patriarchy and the oppression of women, right? You've heard Melissa Fabello speak out about that. You've heard Isabel Fox and Duke and I explore that. And pretty much, you know, as I joke in every episode, I talk about the beauty myth, right? Which keeps women running on a hamster wheel of trying to get smaller and trying to look perfect, quote unquote, rather than doing big things in the world and in their lives, right? And you've heard me talk about, and my guests, you know, also talk about discrimination against larger bodied people under the guise of health, right? So many of my guests have explored this. Reagan Chastain did it really beautifully in her episode. Linda Bacon, of course, Harriet Brown, many other people have spoken about this on the podcast. So when we're talking about all of these issues, all of these things are actually political, right? This is all politics. This is body politics, but it's still politics. 
So that's why it's been impossible for me not to talk about electoral politics lately because it's integrated, it's wrapped up right now in body politics. And I've had a couple listeners say that they don't tune in to hear me talk about politics and that's not what they want from this podcast. But honestly, that is all I ever talk about on this podcast, right? So if you've been listening and loving it or liking it or just continue to come back, you are listening to political discussions, right? It's all politics. And it may take the form of interesting conversations that touch on a lot of other things. But fundamentally, what my guests and I are all talking about is body politics. So when my guests and I bring electoral politics into the conversation, it's actually part of the mission of this podcast. It's it's very much tied into the fabric of this podcast. It's not antithetical to that mission at all. Because in talking about body politics and helping people be at peace with their bodies, my guests and I need to speak about things like misogynistic rhetoric that keeps women feeling small. We need to talk about sexual assault, right? Which is a trigger for eating disorders for so many people. And so many of us women are survivors of both eating disorders and sexual assault, myself included. Bullying, you know, based on body size, right? We have to talk about that. We have to talk about bullying based on race and ethnicity and beauty standards that are white in nature, right? You've heard a couple of my guests who are black talk about this. Kira Robinson touched on it in her episode, right? Going to a new school where everybody was white and suddenly her body was not the norm, right? Was was seen as something she had to change. So these aren't just buzzwords like sexual assault, gender identity, body size, race, ethnicity. This is not just politically correct liberal topics, right, as some conservative news organizations make it out to be. These are actually real identities held by real people. And many of them you've heard on the podcast sharing their stories and expressing how these identities shaped their worldview and their lives. So, you know, some of you might be happy to have the president-elect that we have, and that's totally fine. That's good for you. But if you still want to hear the information about food and body positivity that I'm offering here, I absolutely welcome you. I just I just want you to understand that my entire mission with this podcast is political, and that true body positivity is a political movement. So if you don't want to hear about politics, I completely respect your decision to stop listening, but I'm not going to stop talking about politics or stop holding the progressive values that I have held for my entire life and that keep just deepening and becoming more dear to me, and more authentic, the deeper I get into this body positive movement. So I'm saying all of this now because today's episode is the first interview I've recorded since the election. And the election came up in our conversation, and it has also in the others I've recorded with guests ever since. And I don't release episodes in the order that they were recorded. I have a bunch of different factors I consider in creating my editorial calendar. So you'll hear some future episodes that were recorded pre-election. And of course, you'll hear many episodes were recorded post-election too. So this one is the first, and it's probably the most raw, which I, I love it for that. And I'm so happy to share it with you now. So before I cut to my conversation with Rachel, I just want to read an excerpt from her blog because this is the backdrop to our discussion on the episode. So the day after the election, Rachel wrote a piece called Stay on her blog, and she said, As a woman, my body has rarely felt like home. For too long, I didn't live here. Here was not a place to trust. Here was not a place I thought I could handle with my eyes open. But I found my way back, and I stay. Today, the invitation I have for you may not be easy. Stay. Stay in your body. Stay with the tremors and the shaking. Stay with the pit in your stomach. Stay even as you notice yourself bobbing in and out. These feelings, this trauma, this fear and anger and sadness and confusion and despair cannot kill us. In fact, staying is our salvation. Stay in your body. Just sidle up next to whatever sensation is coursing through your flesh and feel the pain. Notice the quality of your breath. Are you hungry? Cold? Perhaps the best way to describe it is numb? That's all welcome. Just stay. The body knows and it has evolved over millennia to process trauma like many of us are experiencing. These processes require little effort on our part other than loving presence, other than staying with kindness. Stay. So I think that's such a beautiful passage, and the blog goes on. I'm going to post the link to the full post in the show notes for this episode. 
But I just want you to reflect on the fact that wherever you fall on the political spectrum, you can probably identify with what she's talking about here, right? Whatever the topic that has brought up your pain or your terror or your trauma, that feeling, we all know that feeling. And we all know the desire to run away from that feeling, right? We don't want to have to sit with it. We don't want to have to feel it. So this message of staying in your body and staying present and asking yourself what you need is so essential for dealing with any difficult issue or situation, whether that's eating disorder recovery and having to eat more than you're comfortable with, or whether that's accepting your larger body and sitting with that discomfort, or whether that is your reaction to this election, right? So whatever may be bringing it up, and it may be all of those things at once, right? Try to stay present if you can. So now let's go to my conversation with Rachel. And I spoke with her via Skype from her home in my hometown of the Bay Area, California. So Rachel, thank you so much for coming on today. I really resonated with a post you wrote about your feelings after the election and how difficult it was to stay with those feelings and stay in your body and the importance of staying in your body. And I just, I think it really resonates for people anyone who struggles with embodiment, which is most of us, you know, <laughs> say most of us, right? <laughs> so yeah, I'm just, I really am glad to be able to talk with you and kind of process some of this stuff together. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit about, first of all, I guess, just this concept of embodiment and what that means to you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think of embodiment as being aware of our lived experience, especially below the neck. So in our flesh and bone, but not being floating heads with these just annoying bodies sort of attached. And we live in a world that makes embodiment really difficult. I know for myself, from a really young age, I had sort of left my body and that happens for a lot of people where their body just doesn't feel like a safe place to be. And then, of course, as women, we're told that we can't trust our body, that our bodies are gross, and that they are often too big or too hairy or too lumpy or too bumpy. And it doesn't take that many years to sort of drive you out of your natural home. And for a lot of us, we also leave our bodies in times of distress because our body is where our emotions and the truth of our experience lives. So we can sort of lie to ourselves about how we feel and what we think if we aren't that in touch with our body. But as soon as we really drop into just a state of awareness of our body, then the truth is right there waiting for us. And so if we're in, like particularly right now in the political climate where for many of us, there's a lot of pain. And so embodiment is challenging because I don't know anyone who really enjoys pain. Yeah, no, it's we don't want to feel it. We want to escape it. Yeah, that's right. And there's plenty of ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think for so many of us who have struggled with eating and body image issues, it's there's a way in which like focusing on our external body is actually leaving the body right? It's mm -hmm. taking mm -hmm. us out of that's right. feeling what we need to feel because that stuff is actually going on in our heads. Like that's yep. us living in our heads and projecting ideas onto our body about our bodies, about what they should be and how we should manipulate them, how they should feel. Yeah. If you think about like a house, you know, it's focusing on the outside of the house instead of occupying all of the rooms. And in the journey of embodiment, I think for a lot of women, you know, they maybe live in one or two rooms of their house in this sort of metaphor here. So maybe they've moved out of their soft belly or they moved out of their thighs or they moved out of some part of their body where trauma happened. And so our task on the journey of embodiment or re-embodiment is to not worry so much about the paint on the outside of the house, but to really fully inhabit every room of our house. Mm, I love that metaphor. That's beautiful. Because yeah, it is, we get cut off from all these parts of ourselves through being told again and again that there's something wrong with us, right? Like right. we 
can't trust ourselves in one way or another. And it, it affects everyone. It's like, even if your body somehow in certain ways matches up with the quote unquote cultural ideals, there's plenty of other ways in which it doesn't. So you can always be chasing something to do differently or to change about your body. Right. And if you do somehow match up closer to the cultural ideas, then there's a whole other experience of just being an object, Mm -hmm. which is also sort of erodes embodiment. Right. When you're objectified, you're seen as not an agent of your own body. Mm -hmm. Your body is something foreign to you, something to be used by other people or consumed by other people. Yeah, it's you're uh, there to perform and to appear a certain way. You're not even there. It's not even you. So, yeah. Right. Right. So there's really no way of winning in this situation. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is to come home. Yeah. Again and again. It's not easy, but yeah. Yeah. So I love that. I love that metaphor of coming home. I'm curious what you would recommend for doing that. You know, it's just thinking back over my journey. And you know, I can remember I went to see a yoga therapist at one point, like a therapist who incorporates yoga. And she asked me to do a, a certain really gentle, basic yoga pose. But in doing it, I had to physically feel my, my belly. And I just started crying and sort of hyperventilating. And it was just so intense. And so I think I'm wary of just saying, well, you know, just go to yoga class and feel your body. And yes, by all means, if there's a supportive yoga teacher or yoga class that feels good to you, that's great. But I think sometimes we have to start even earlier if we've been out of our body for a long time or we feel really separate from it. So body scans can be really great. Any sort of guided body scan is really helpful. But even as we are living our life, so as we're washing the dishes or climbing upstairs or crawling into bed, just sort of noticing like what's happening in my body. Just it's a lot of curiosities, you know, what temperature is my body and where am I holding tightness or where do I feel loose or where does it feel like it's really easy to breathe into? Where does it feel like I really don't want to feel that? Yeah, I think so. It's just sort of constantly. So if you think about your awareness as like you're taking a snapshot like a picture, like what's happening in this moment, this fresh moment in my body. It's an orientation of our awareness. And over time, the more we get curious about it and the more we practice dropping into our body and feeling what's there, certainly around food, and we can talk about that, the more it becomes just a place that we naturally check in. That's well said. I like that. So yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned your journey. We can, we usually start in the past, but I sort of started in the present just because there's so much going on in the present that we're both feeling around the election and just pain and sadness about that. And I think it's important to honor that for ourselves and our listeners because many of us are feeling that. So it's real. Yeah, it is. And we were just talking off mic a little bit about sensitivity and how a lot of people who've struggled with these food and body issues also happen to be and are often more likely to be highly sensitive people who really pick up on a lot from our environments and feel a lot and feel deeply. So probably many of you listening are feeling that same pain and these same mix of emotions in the aftermath of this election. Mm-hmm. And those who aren't, I'm happy for you, but (laughs) that's not where I'm at. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's important to kind of be here too. It's a little bit of a different episode, I guess, because of that. It's a different world. It's a different world. Or it's the same world with a different lens. Yeah. Yeah. It's a world that I never expected to be in. Yeah. It's frightening. It is frightening. And, and so I am still working every day to not check out. I mean, I think that there is a time and a place for checking out. And I think that's really actually an important aspect of self-care right now, but to also stay checked in when it's so uncomfortable. That's a really important point because, yeah, I think it's so tempting to just escape to whatever numbing or detaching coping skills people tend to use. And I have definitely felt that impulse in myself to like just dive back into work, you know, 
don't look at the news, watch TV, escape. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that has been a relief in some way to give me a little bit of strength to come back and face the other stuff. I mean, I've also been trying to remind myself to come back and feel those feelings, which are so uncomfortable. Yeah. What are your, how's it been going for you? It's, oof, it's been intense. And I don't know if you experience this, but most people I talk to who are in a helping profession are having the most intense week or two of their, of their career. You know, my clients are a wreck and I've never had an experience where my clients are sort of going through exactly what I'm going through at the same time. So there's not a, a huge amount of distance. I have, of course, been sort of trying to grapple with, you know, what's, I think like all of us, what's my place in this? What's my part? And how do I find that point of integrity where I am not leaning too far in one direction of either checking out or sort of over engagement? Because if I'm not taking care of myself, I feel out of integrity. And if I'm only taking care of myself and not engaging, I feel out of integrity. So it's this, it's this new dance. Mm. Yeah, I feel that very much too. It has been such an intense couple of weeks with clients. I feel like very much the same way, like people have the same reactions to it as I'm having. And mm -hmm. it's stripped away a lot of the boundaries in some cases, mm -hmm. which is sometimes helpful to an extent, but it's also hard to navigate and different. Yeah. And then I'll say also, and this might not be, I don't know, as sensitive as I might normally feel, but when I'm doing a day of coaching with people and we're talking about, you know, global issues and safety and all of those things. And then I will have like one client who, you know, is really stuck on the size of their thighs. The sort of whiplash and the contrast is really jarring because it's just such a reminder to me what an oppressive force the dieting industry and patriarchy and objectification of women and all of that is. And that so to be coaching with someone who's so so oppressed, so caught in that, that they're not able to really engage in what's happening outside of themselves is challenging right now. Yeah, it really is. Mm -hmm. I have been experiencing like it brings up this anger that I have toward patriarchy and toward oppression and toward the whole system that is so sharp and pointed right now because of the election. I feel like it has mm -hmm. crystallized the anger I have for all these systems that keep us oppressed. And then to see someone who's sort of giving voice to that, the eating disorder or the body fixation that is speaking through them is, is the voice of the oppressor. That's right. It makes me angry. Mm -hmm. And that that's, you know, I'm not angry at the person, but I, it makes me angry at the system. And to have to sort of navigate that as a person who's trying to help other humans, you know, mm -hmm. but also as someone who personally feels very wounded by this turn of events mm -hmm. is, yeah, I think the most challenging thing I've done in my career. Yeah, easily. And I only hope that there's a lot of women out there who channel what's going on into sort of a sense of empowerment, like, oh, like no longer is anyone going to define what I need to look like. And yeah, that really like taking back of one's power and voice and body would be a great, great outcome. It would be. And I've seen it a little bit. I've seen it in a few of my clients who were so gutted by this election, but also galvanized, like it just sort of made it very clear to them, like, this is what I'm needed. This is what I'm called to do in the world is to help change the system that elected this person. And um, I can't do that if I'm, you know, starving myself or fixating That's on food right. or whatever. So let's, you know, use this as a, as inspiration to recover, which is yeah. amazing. And yeah. It's been such a roller coaster of emotions because it's so powerful to witness that in people and to see their social justice consciousness catching fire. I know for me, and we haven't really talked about you know my journey, but in recovering from an eating disorder, gosh, I don't know, 15 years ago, 
that aspect, like getting angry at the system was essential. That redirection of that anger I had towards myself and towards my body, towards where it rightfully belonged, allowed me to find strength and healing. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your journey because I think that transition from anger towards yourself to anger directed in the appropriate places is such a transformational thing and was also so profoundly healing for me in my journey. So I think I'd love to hear how that happened for you and of course what led to it in the first place, what led to the the struggles that you had. Do you want to start at, at what age? Where should we start? <laughs> Let's go back. So my usual question to start the podcast is tell me about your relationship with food growing up, which generally sort of implies like whatever salient details you can remember. I remember a lot. (laughs) So my dad is Jewish and from Cincinnati. And my mom was raised sort of loosely Protestant from Tucson, Arizona. And I grew up in Washington, D.C. And my parents met in South America in the Peace Corps. And They both have a really deep shared love of food and food culture and food traditions and gastronomy and food history. And, you know, under the Christmas tree every year was, you know, something from Julia Child, not actually from Julia Child, but the way that someone might write from Santa, you know, (laughs) I grew up in a, in a house where food was really the, the center and my maternal grandmother, while she herself wasn't Mexican her cooking was predominantly Sonoran Mexican food, as well as some New Mexican cuisine where she was originally from. And so there's a big influence of that in my family's cooking. And, you know, my my sister is a chef now. So yeah, food has been a big part of my life story. And then growing up, my mom made dinner most nights, but we also, you know, had junk food. We had the occasional McDonald's or I occasionally had Doritos in my lunch. It wasn't pure, but, you know, sugary cereals were sort of treated as desserts and not breakfast without a lot of fuss, not a lot of shaming and judgment, just sort of like, this is what makes sense. And I think the fact that my parents had such a love of food and that the food that they provided was really delicious and that there was no pressure made on me to eat in one way or another resulted in me originally developing a pretty balanced approach to food. I remember being a pretty picky kid, although I, in comparison to my three-and-a-half-year-old nephew, I feel like I was not so picky. But I had the things I liked, and I sort of you know, didn't want to deviate too much from them. When we would go on trips, I would sort of find whatever local dish, and I would eat the same thing at every you know, every meal or I really loved carbs. I could put away a pound of pasta then. I still love carbs. Me too. <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of what I eat. And I also didn't like a lot of things. Didn't like chocolate, didn't like marshmallows, didn't like all kinds of things that you might think kids like. I just, I liked what I liked and I didn't like what I didn't like. And I was pretty opinionated about it. <laughs> Did your parents have feelings about that or was it kind of like treated as a phase? You know, they were really patient with (laughs) my mom was really patient with me. And I think a a lot of ways that she communicated her love was by sort of being willing to sort of tailor things to my ridiculous preferences at times. And they were phases, right? And I did move out of them and learn to like almost all the things that at one point I didn't like. And I think that happened just because there was no pressure and things were always available to try or taste and like or not like. Yeah, kids' palates develop differently at different paces. And oftentimes there's a phase where it's just like nothing bitter or nothing of a certain texture or whatever, and then they grow out of it. Yep, exactly. And it's interesting, we were talking about being a highly sensitive person. Like I I can't stand to eat anything that has sugar crystals on it. Uh, Against my teeth, it feels like eating sand. So anyways, little things like that. And then I mentioned my sister is a chef. She took to cooking really early. And so that sort of became her domain. And as sibling dynamics go, I felt like there wasn't a lot of room for me in the kitchen. So I was much later to come to the kitchen myself. But I think that you pick up on it when you're sort of steeped in that environment. So cooking came really naturally to me 
and intuitively to me just because I grew up so steeped in it, even if it wasn't sort of an activity that I did a ton of as a kid. I mean, I did a lot more of it than most kids. Yeah, what a gift to have that sort of... Yeah, I feel really, I feel really, really lucky in that regard. Of course, it it didn't prevent me from (laughs) my own struggle. Right. Yeah, when did that begin? I can remember feeling sort of some level of body shame or wondering if my body was okay pretty young. While I more or less always had a sort of stereotypical thin or average body, I was never athletic and I never did anything that would have allowed me to develop a relationship to my body that was more to do with living in it than looking at it. And I never had a flat stomach. And so I can remember feeling like that's something I should have this belly that I can like hold in my hand is shameful. And no one in my house shamed my body, but I would say both my parents never had really great self-esteem around their bodies. My dad, interesting, I don't have a ton of memories of this, but I know that he did diet off and on when I was younger. And I know that his weight sort of fluctuated and his relationship to food was always a struggle. Did he voice that to you or did you just sort of pick up on that from little cues? It was a thing in our family. It was just known and talked about because, I mean, he really struggled with this word isn't going to be right based on what I know now, but I would at the time would have said self-control, but definitely having a sense of him feeling out of control around food or, and definitely felt like he role modeled, if it tastes good, eat more, which is, is, there's a disconnection there from the body. And I can remember in high school, just sort of lightly dabbling in restriction, very, very lightly. And then I went off to college and I think I was a pretty disconnected eater my freshman year, had a lot of social anxiety and, you know, just finding my way in that new environment with the dining hall and being around people all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone ordering pizza at 11 o'clock at night and just wanting to participate. And I didn't, again, wasn't really in my body. So I wasn't aware of what I wanted. And then I went and I studied abroad the second half of my sophomore year. And the coming back from that was really sort of the triggers sort of all aligned. So when I came back from that, I had a a lot of anxiety about would I have any friends left? Would anyone remember me? Just going back to school was very, very stressful for me. I felt really not good in my body. Again, I had never, ever sort of had any sort of movement practice at all and felt a lot of shame about that because, you know, I had really sort of internalized this idea that if you are a good, if you are good, then you exercise. So I had a couple months at my parents' house before I was going to go back to campus and I was pretty militant about using their treadmill. And then I went back to campus and wanted to maintain that. And I was uncomfortable being around the varsity athletes. And so I forced myself to be at the gym when it opened at, you know, 530 or six in the morning. And the sort of, yeah, the militancy was, was there pretty early. And then one day I was on the treadmill and I saw the calorie counter. And I had never in my life thought about calories. I don't know how you got to be my age and hadn't thought about them, but I really (laughs) hadn't thought a lot about them. Thin privilege, maybe. Yeah, thin privilege, for sure. Because I experienced that too, you know? It's like I've had a very similar trajectory where it was like some body discomfort, a reasonably intuitive relationship with food as a kid, and then going away to college. And all through that time, it was like I was protected from comments about my body from other people by virtue of being on the smaller side. And then college is sort of when I was like, oh my God, people do this? Like people lose weight and that's something I could do. It's like, it just never dawned on me that that was possible. Mine wasn't about weight, which is interesting. It was really about the sort of guise of health and ultimately anxiety management. Yeah, so thinking the calories were were part of health too. Totally. Being low-cal was being healthy. Yeah, it actually, so 
that day that I noticed the calorie counter, I went to the dining hall after that for breakfast and I, the bin where the bagels were, I was lifting the lid to get one and I, they had taped the nutritional information to it and I saw how many calories were in one bagel. And it's like my brain just went full on math and logic. (laughs) And it was like, oh, well, half a bagel is half the time on the treadmill. So I'll have half of one. So right there, it's like my body just wasn't even in the equation. How hungry I was wasn't in the equation. What I wanted to eat wasn't in the equation. It was just like a mathematical computation. And then because I was working out so intensely and cutting back what I was eating, I started to lose weight, which was actually a surprise to me and not what I expected. And lo and behold, what do I receive? Praise. Praise. (laughs) Praise which then is just fuel for the fire. And it's funny, little bits of things sort of pop up to me different times when I tell the story. And I can remember even signing up for Weight Watchers online. And I remember like putting in my weight, which really the system should have been like, you (laughs) should like, legally, we cannot sell you our product. But it totally spit out like, this is how many points that, you know. And so Things spiraled down pretty quickly from there. That was pretty early on my sophomore year. And by, I remember going home for Thanksgiving. My mom was pretty concerned. By Christmas, she was really concerned. And I thought everyone else was crazy. I thought they've never seen me on a health kick. And I went back to campus and I overheard some friends saying, you know, Rachel's disappearing. And I was just so smug. I was just like, they are so dumb. They just don't even know. And then I had a friend, a friend staged a one person intervention. (laughs) And so, you know what? I was like, you know, enough of this. I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to get a note that says I'm fine. And then we can all just move on. And I went to the doctor and turns out I wasn't fine. And that was a huge shock to me. Huge. It really rocked my sense of identity. Yeah, because you thought you were healthy. You thought you were being healthy. I thought I was healthy, but I also thought I'm a feminist. And like, I'm really smart. And this only happens to people that aren't smart. And this only happens to people who are really shallow. And this, like, how on earth did this happen to me? Or this only happens to people whose mom put them on a diet when they were eight. Or it just broke a lot of stereotypes I had. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And unlike some people, I didn't want to be unwell. I didn't want to have an eating disorder. Some people aren't ready to give it up. I wasn't ready to give up the behaviors because they were serving a really important function in terms of managing my anxiety. But I really did not want to be sick. And so I really dedicated myself to understanding how my life had resulted in me arriving in those circumstances and worked with an eating disorder therapist. And we can go into more detail after that, but clawed my Mm -hmm. way sort of out of there. Yeah. I'm curious what resonated for you in therapy and sort of helped you make the step to recovery, the first step. Oh, it was not easy. (laughs) I always tell my clients who are sort of in that step of the journey that you know they're doing some of the most uncelebrated, courageous work there is. Like people just do not know the amount of bravery it takes. So my therapist was a intersectional feminist and activist, and that was really important. She also, I don't want to say she blurred the lines, but she loved me. And that was really important. It didn't feel like a sterile therapeutic relationship. And I can't emphasize how important that was in my recovery. And then a big part of it was I went to school in Ohio at the time, and I had access to all of the libraries at every college and university in the state of Ohio. And there's quite a few, it's a lot of books. And I just ordered every single one on anything pertaining to eating disorders or body image or feminism or spirituality and gave myself a serious education. That was really 
really helpful because I want to understand how something works. And so that combination, those laid the foundation. And then I went home from school between my junior and senior years and I was really sick. And I don't actually know why anyone let me go back to school, but I went back to school. And at that point, the allowed foods, you know, my list of allowed foods was like down to like carrots. (laughs) And I think it was maybe the first week I was back on campus and I went to the bathroom and I defecated like undigested carrots. And I looked in, I remember looking in the toilet and being like, what are you doing? Whatever it's going to take to not be here, you have it in you and it is worth it. It's scary and you don't know how you're going to get there. But like this, this is not somewhere we want to stay. It's just not worth it anymore. It was taking too much of my life. And so I went to my therapist's office and I told her, you know, today's session's going to be a little different. I'm finally ready. So I want to pause because I feel like I've been talking a long time. Should I keep going? Oh, yeah. No, I just, I love, I love hearing this. But I actually had a thought as you were saying that you had chucked out all those books and really started to educate yourself. I think it's interesting when the sort of thing that led you down the road to the eating disorder that leads so many of us down the road is like this diligence, right? This ability to sort of decide to do something and follow through and like really try hard. And that ended up being, it sounds like a strength in the beginning stages of your recovery. Like you were able to sort of mobilize that to help yourself. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I can definitely see the parallels to that. I mean, most women I know, when we put our mind to something, we can move mountains. Yes, absolutely. And I think so many, so many folks who write me, who listen to the podcast and find it helpful, say that they're diving into this world of body positivity and just consuming everything they can about it and getting really immersed in it. And it's like, that's it. It's the deprogramming. So like the dieting mindset is a cult. It's sort of, you've been brainwashed. We've all been brainwashed. And so we really have to participate in our own deprogramming by altering our sources of media, by the things that are posted on the walls in our home, by the people that we talk to and the conversations we have. And lo and behold, in time, we can be sort of cleansed of that programming. Absolutely. And it does take kind of constant immersion too and something different because it's, I think for so many people who stumble into an eating disorder, it's like you might not even have been aware that you were getting those messages. Like you said, you know, it's like, those are for people whose mothers told them to diet, like when they were eight, which certainly many of us, you know, many of the folks listening that happened too. But a lot of us, it's also just these tiny little moments and instances and like media that you see and comments people make about each other or their own bodies and you don't even register what it's doing to you. But it's all just laying that foundation so that if you step a toe in the water of like, oh, I'm going to exercise and quote, get healthy, then suddenly all of that is just laying weight for you. Yeah. And I bet you experience this now where like, you're so aware of it that you can't go to a movie and hear a quote unquote benign fat joke without being outraged or offended or. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's everywhere. Every time someone tells me their like favorite movie is Love Actually, I just want to be like, oh. you need to go back and watch it from the perspective of body shame. Seriously. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's rampant. And as soon as we start really noticing it, it can kind of at first seem like it's robbing the joy out of life. And I think that's part of why we need more body positive media of all stripes, you know, people who get it to be making movies and making books and comedy and all that. But absolutely a whole other issue. <laughs> but so now it sounds like you were delving into all this literature and information and it didn't quite translate into behavior change until that moment when you were like, oh, my digestion is fucked basically. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it. I was considering, but you're right. Behaviors weren't really changing until, until then. And, and so I went to my therapist's office and I asked her, what do we do? Cause we'd never really talked about getting better in the, in a very practical way. And she pulled out a piece of paper and it was an eating disorder recovery meal plan. 
you know, so, you know, this is what you'll eat for breakfast, snacks, lunch, blah, 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 blah. And my whole body was just like, no. To me, that piece of paper looked like a diet. You're not going to cure an illness with an illness. And I'm not saying that there aren't, there isn't a time and a place for a recovery meal plan for different people. But for me, it was not the path for me and it didn't make sense to me because I was so aware that what had happened was I had stopped being able to hear my body. I didn't know what hunger felt like. I didn't know what fullness felt like. I didn't know the path forward, the sustainable path forward was going to be to come back to my body. It meant that ultimately I was choosing the much harder thing to do in the short run for the easier thing in the long run. Like a meal plan is much easier in the short term because you don't have to worry about it or think about it. And I really just was like, I'm just going to go free dive. Wow. And it was really hard and really scary. And was I was eating a ton because A, I was underfed and underweight, but I also just didn't know those cues anymore. And I needed to also, is it habituize, habituate, mm, habituate yeah. all those forbidden foods again. So I had to go through that phase, which everybody has to go through of really testing, can I really eat however much I want? And so that initial phase is awful. It's awful. And a lot of the work that I do today is sitting with people through that phase and just being like, this doesn't last forever and you have to keep going. And lo and behold, they're like, oh, and then you do, you do just find your way on the other side of it, but it's not pleasant. Yeah. Did you sort of say like, okay, the brakes are off now. I'm just going to mm-hmm. eat everything that was on the forbidden list and sort of dive right into that? Or did you have any systematic? I was going to try to eat whatever I wanted. Like that was, I think, sort of the framework of if you want it, you can have it. But yeah, it meant that I was, there were a lot of stomach aches. There was a lot of feeling sick from eating so much, but I needed to do that. I needed to show that part of my brain that scarcity was no longer the name of the game so that it could relax. Mm -hmm. Did you sort of follow your cues then? Like once you started eating, your body was just like, give me all the food and you, you went with that? Yeah. It means that you're in an experimentation phase. So you'll be in the grocery store and you'll be like, well, now that I can have whatever I want, maybe I want that. I don't know. <laughs> so Give it a shot. See yeah. what happens. Yeah. It's not fun. I mean, it's interesting because it sounds like you really did it in a way that is what the body is asking for. I think the thing that happens with a lot of people in recovery from a restrictive eating disorder is like there's this natural desire to binge, which is coming from your body. That's what your body wants and needs. And then people will be so afraid of that that either they end up compensating with other really unhealthy means or they can't sort of let themselves get started eating because they're afraid they're going to go overboard, in which case meal plan, I think at that point can be helpful just to give people some structure and like right. assurance. Like totally. it's okay. You'll have food now and food in a couple hours and food again. And like, and it's okay. You don't have to eat it all right now. But what your body really demands of you is eat all the food right now. And, you know, I was lucky because in all that reading, I, I think it was just really the early sort of stages of health at every size. And certainly my therapist was already in that paradigm. And so when I made the decision to recover, I really made the decision to let my body weigh whatever it was going to weigh. That's awesome. And that was hard. And it also meant I did. I put on a lot of weight really fast. And that's not a comfortable experience for anybody. As I say to my clients, if you woke up tomorrow, you know, missing or having a third arm, it's you'd be like, what's going on here? Any sort of rapid change in our body is disorienting. We don't have to label it as bad or good. It's just like, whoa, what's happening? Yeah, it's that sort of parallels that awkward phase of puberty when you grow quickly and your body expands and it's different dimensions and you're just like, what is happening? I'm so awkward. Exactly. So I was really ready to give up the controlling my size thing which enabled me to get better a lot faster. Yeah, that is huge. I mean, to be able to commit to that first, I think saves people so much pain. Because if you 
aren't fully committed to that, it's such a dance of will I or won't I do this? And what's going to happen to my size? And mm-hmm. giving that up, of course, means it's about so much more than just how we look, right? It's like giving up a connection to the patriarchy, really, an internalized patriarchy and connections to people in your life that maybe represent that or sort of further that point of view. Yeah. It's tough. And it sounds like maybe you had an advantage in that you didn't have people in your family telling you that about yourself. So you hadn't internalized. Right. The people around you were were a little more supportive, hopefully. Yeah. Supportive or neutral. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But oh my gosh, what a what an amazing decision to make. Yeah. I'm glad I made it. Absolutely. And yeah, how long, you know, I mean, not how long necessarily in time, but where did you go from there, I guess? I was on fire. I went to the school administration and was like, you're not doing enough to fight eating disorders on campus. And I would say within a year, a little maybe more than a year or so that I was relatively weight stable and relatively back to somewhat normal-ish. And then a year after that, I moved to California for grad school. And because I had, once again, told myself that my identity is, I am now someone who's recovered. I am someone who doesn't struggle with that anymore. I am now someone, I had worked in prevention on that campus. They hired me for a job. I, I mean, I'm a professional in this field. And I moved to California where I didn't know anybody. And I was, you know, 3,000 miles away from my family and was all of a sudden given a whole new set of food rules. So in California, eat local, eat organic, ferment this, Weston A. Price that, Ayurvedic this. And I was getting my master's in holistic health education. So I was taking graduate level nutrition classes, which while they weren't your standard USDA food pyramid, they they had their own judgment and their own list of good and bad foods and all of that. And lo and behold, I became orthorexic, which I was in denial about for a long time because, again, it it challenged my sense of who I was. Yeah, and it challenges, I think, the cultural sense of what healthy is, too. Yep. Orthorexia looks like just pursuing health in the culturally constructed sense of the word. So it's easy to think you're not doing anything wrong because it looks like, oh, I'm just doing this thing that I'm supposed to be doing really well. Right. And I was living, I lived in this bubble where everyone's doing it. And of course, you're not supposed to eat gluten and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And so I probably struggled with that for four to five years. And a big chunk of that was just in denial. And then went into treatment after I had that sort of, I can no longer restrict SNAP. So I was binging and... On the things that were forbidden by your orthorexic... Or anything, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was lucky. I had good health insurance. And the health insurance I had, they happened to have a 10-month DBT eating disorder program that met once a week in the evenings. So I could go after work. So I was also seeing a therapist. And they had a nutritionist as a whole team. And coming at that from having recovered once before, I felt really set up to recover, if that makes sense. Like I was like, okay, I've now, I've done this before. Let me, I now understand what's going on. I, but yeah, not fun or easy. Right. Well, especially giving up that identity, right? Like mm-hmm. or challenging that identity, probably challenging some of the friendships and associations you had, right? Which is tough. Yeah, I've I've worked with so many clients who are known to their coworkers as like the healthy one mm-hmm. and being willing to eat what they want at lunch at work and have their coworkers, you know, look at them. I thought you only ate whatever. Yeah, we really box people in. We do. And yeah, then to have to have a conversation about it when it's something that you're struggling with and trying hard to do for your own health and someone's like, ooh, you're eating unhealthy today. It's like, yeah. ah. Someone's being naughty. Yeah. Yeah. How frustrating. 
how frustrating to have to deal with that. Yeah, no, I have a similar, it's funny how I feel like we're parallel lives in some ways of going through this stuff. Cause I also recovered from restriction through mine was like a relationship with a foodie and like getting into, I was a journalist in my first career and I started covering food and became specialized in writing about food. And also at the time, cause I started out in environmental journalism and then I moved into food from there. So it was from this lens of sustainability and organics and food systems. And I got very into that whole world and also had a lot of orthorexia. I never was diagnosed never i worked with a therapist around that but i didn't i didn't acknowledge the quote unquote healthy mandate that i was putting on myself as a problem at all i was still restricting and binging and that was something that i could acknowledge and deal with directly but the restrictions i was placing on the types of food i would eat i was like not willing to touch so right it was really only from working at gourmet a food magazine that's much more open to all it was it's RIP it's now folded but (laughs) was open to all different kinds of foods and wasn't just about orthorexic type of cuisine that was I think a big huge step for me in the recovery journey but it was hard to I mean I still have friends that I made when I was working in the at the environmental magazine who if I haven't seen them for a long time or just kind of knowing how they eat too it's like oh, what are you doing with gluten these days? They'll ask me or whatever, like, because it was on again, off again, on again, off again with gluten. It was kind of like an on again, off again relationship. People would be like, oh, what's up with this guy? What's up with gluten? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a bunch of people over for a little solidarity gathering on Sunday and had to, as a sort of social mandate here, had to email out that there would be food for people who are carnivores and food for people who are gluten-free and food for people that are vegan and like mm-hmm. I know it's it's hard to navigate these communities that we're a part of right when and now um, it sounds like your philosophy on food has evolved into a very open and balanced direction right and so yeah to navigate other people's issues with it is always still interesting yeah I mean it's been a ride you know, think there's times where I feel a lot of judgment for people who are restricting. Yeah. And then now I try to look at it. What's the place they're coming from? And I certainly, if it feels like it's an intuitive place where whatever they're doing is based on what feels good to them and it isn't making them sort of obsessed or crazy. Awesome. And if it feels like it's coming from some other place, then I I really work on the compassion piece. It's hard for me. My friends sort of who are into Whole30 or whatever, sort of walk on eggshells around me for fear of getting a lecture (laughs) (laughs) on how it's just another diet. Mm -hmm. That's funny. Someone wrote to me recently, a a listener of the podcast, and said, what do you think about the Whole30? Do you ever talk about that on the podcast? I'm like, I haven't actually addressed it directly, but yeah, it is just another diet. Just another diet. It's just another diet. And they, they dress them up in nice language these days. They dress diets up to seem... Yeah, I mean, if there's rules, if there's rules to follow about what you should and shouldn't eat or when you should and shouldn't eat or how much you should and shouldn't eat, then it's a diet. Yep, well said. Very succinct, easy checklist to like yeah. look at, right? It's Because yeah, it could be Whole30, it could be just like local, sustainable, organic. Yep. It could be anything that seems quote unquote healthy. But if there's good and bad foods or on limits and off limits foods or foods you shouldn't have. Yeah. Can you mess it up? If you can mess it up. Yeah. You can mess it up. It's a diet. Yep. That's really well said. I love it. Like, well, I get a cheat day on this diet. No. No. (laughs) Diet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cheat day on this holistic living plan or this healthy lifestyle. Really? Yeah. Does it ask you to override your body? Right. Does it ask you to override your desires? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you get that final step of the way into sort of embodying that approach to food, that relationship with food, and then starting your career in this field, or I guess continuing your career, but in a different in a different way? Yeah. I mean, I think I just really, really, really got that health at every size and intuitive eating is the only thing that works. I just got it in my bones. 
And so I was in sort of a different line of work after grad school, but practicing after I sort of finished my treatment, my orthorexia treatment. And I read that you were you were working a little bit in the sustainable food industry then too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Rife with judgment. And so I was practicing intuitive eating and and then I, a couple of years down the road, I ended up getting parting ways or getting laid off or however you want to parse it apart from a job that I really loved and was really clear to me at the time that there was nothing else in that field that I wanted to do. And I had always thought that I would have to wait till I was older to do what I do now because I didn't think anybody would hire or trust someone. At the time, I was like you know, 28 or 29. And when that happened, I was just sort of like, you know, what am I waiting for? I absolutely have what it takes to help people and have what it takes to help former me. Yes. And so I went and spent a year getting certified as a life coach, knowing that I was going to focus on on this stuff. And that's what I've been doing for the last, I guess, almost six years. That's awesome. That was also when I went back to school, actually 28. And I was like, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to make this life change? But it was the right decision for sure. Yeah. I mean, I sort of had to say, you know, if I was going to get hit by a bus in a year, what do I want to do with my life if I don't know how long it's going to last? So, Yeah, definitely. It was something that you had in you for a long time, it sounds like. Yeah. It was ready, ready to come out. Yeah. And, you know, there's that Joni Mitchell lyric, I've looked at love from both sides now. And she does continue on that she still doesn't understand love at all. But uh, I sort of feel like I've looked at food and body from all the sides. Like, yeah, okay, I got this. Like, I'm not scared at all for a client to show up with whatever. Like, I have, I've been there. You've been there. You've seen it all. Yeah. I think, yeah, we got to go through stuff sometimes to be able to... I mean, especially with this diet culture stuff, like to really get on the other side of it, I think sometimes we have to stumble into diets and stumble into restriction a few times or again and Mm -hmm. again and like kind of see it from all sides and start to be able to recognize, oh, yeah, this falls in the diet category, even though it's not. And Whole30 is a diet and, you know, sustainability can be a diet and you can make anything and do a diet, but Mm -hmm. you can't really internalize that sometimes until you have lived it. That's right. I definitely hear from a lot of people who have that similar sentiment that you expressed of like, well, I know this stuff about health at every size. I value this information. I'm a feminist. Why do I still have an eating disorder? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is it that's not clicking? It's like sometimes you just have to go through it and get to that point for yourself where it's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Because it made you who you are. Yeah. It allowed me to wake up. And I think too, so many women and so many people in general go through life in this semi-disordered state of eating, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's some statistics showing like 75% of women have disordered eating or an eating disorder. So Mm -hmm. those two thirds who are just in the disordered eating category, sometimes there's nothing big enough and obvious enough to wake them up, to wake people up to like, oh, actually this isn't working. Right. That breaks my heart, (laughs) that statistic, but yeah. Oh, me too. So heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think that's why people need to hear this message. You know, people need to hear, I mean, it's kind of my dream that Food Psych can be the first nutrition related podcast people hear when they're like, I should learn about nutrition and health. You know, (laughs) if they could stumble into this stuff instead of stumbling into some paleo podcast or some Whole30 crap or whatever, like that would be amazing. I am in full support of that. And I think we just need more and more people doing this kind of work, you know? So I think it's awesome that you're doing what you do and spreading the word and doing it so beautifully. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of your work, tell us where people can find you and learn more about it. So my website is Rachel W. Cole. So it's R-A-C-H-E-L-W-C-O-L-E.com. And I'm on Facebook at, uh, it's facebook.com slash feed your life. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm not hard to find. I love Feed Your Life. 
and your program feast. I love the name of that too. It's so beautiful. That's what I want women to do. Mm, Feast on your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. That's, I think, such a beautiful aspiration and something we can all get to and something we are all designed to do, I think. Absolutely. The world is full of women who have found their way through the jungle of food and diet and body struggle. And so there's nobody, I think, who can't heal or find their way. Truly, I agree. I've seen clients who people told them they would never recover from their eating disorder and seen them flourish and come into their own with this work, you know, and just really starting to embrace and and embody health at every size and feminism and intuitive eating. And it's remarkable to see that transformation. Best feeling ever. Yeah, it really is. So yeah, if anyone out there is listening who's had that told to them, just keep at it. It's not, I think the people who say that kind of thing are also not awake themselves. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're working with a practitioner who told you that, find someone else. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And someone who looks at you and says, you got this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not going to be easy, but you got this. Yeah. Someone who believes in you and sees that yeah. innate wisdom and goodness. Yeah. Because we all deserve that. And we all have that. It's in all of us. Oh, well, thank you so much, Rachel, for being on the podcast. It's such a joy to talk with you, even in this this difficult time. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, exclusive giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body, and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast's app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. So we're currently in the top 50 of all health podcasts, and that's really cool because we're competing against some of the diet mentality, sort of traditional weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who just wants your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend?